This is the Silver City Church Podcast. Our prayer is you are edified by this content and that it refines your life in Christ. Visit us at silvercityky.com. From there, you can connect with us on social media, view our location and service time, and download our mobile app to stay all the more connected with us. If this content has been beneficial to you, please share it and give this show a high rating so more may hear the gospel of Christ. May you see God's will be done and kingdom come in your life. Today in our text, we have not a tale of two cities, but a tale of two brothers. A tale of two brothers. Today we're going to be examining what brotherly Christian love looks like and examining and in doing that examining what we are called to do in loving our fellow Christians in both truth according to God's word and indeed in correct uh, practical sacrifice. Amen. So this morning, let's go to the scriptures and read our text this morning. First John 3, 11 through 18. God's word says this. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Thus says the living word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive and active. And so we pray that the word would do the work. God, I pray that I would be able to get out of the way and that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work this morning, dividing muscle from bone and joint from marrow, that you would call someone to salvation today, that you would sanctify us, that we would be more and more like your son, that we build our lives upon the rock of your son, the cornerstone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week, we examined what? Not two cities, two family trees. And what were they? The family tree of God and the family tree of the devil. Right? Everyone belongs to one of these two trees. There's not a grove full of trees. There's two trees, two options. Apart from being born again, God calling us from darkness to life, everyone's in the tree, the family tree of the devil, of Satan. And just like in any family, all the members, they resemble one another. It's, it's wild to look at our kids that we have here. And I, I praise God that we have so many. I praise God that, yeah, they get a little restless and we've got to take them out and all those things. But you know what? There's no denying who they are. But last week I made the little comment, have you seen Brooklyn? She looks just like Justin with pigtails. She does. We resemble one another in our families. That's where we left off last week in 1 John 3.10. Let's, let's recap that real quick. 1 John 3.10. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
that family trees bear fruit. And as Jesus said, you shall know a fruit, a tree by its fruit. John has consistently recycled through major foundational truths of Christianity throughout this little letter. The reason is because the false teaching that's behind this letter, remember it was it was Gnosticism, this elite knowledge, the secret Illuminati conspiracy theory style stuff. That was all attacking the very foundational truths that John keeps re, uh, re-bolstering and, and, and giving support to. So every house, if we think about family trees and families and brothers, every house has a foundation with the structure built on top of it. Garrett didn't, and I did not plan that this morning with the Westminster thing about houses, okay? Every house has a foundation. Okay, if you blow the roof off of the house, while there may be water damage and exposure, things like that, the house for the most part is still intact. But if you crack or destroy the foundation, the whole structure topples down. That is why John keeps reiterating these major themes and concepts of the Christian life. It's still the same in our day. The worldly system of sin that is rebellion against God is always concerned to dismantle the foundation, never the shingles. The worldly system of sin is always ready to destroy the foundation and never the shingles. Let me give you an example. Transgenderism is an ideology that attempts to dismantle the very foundation of what it means to be a man or a woman, a human. That God is the creator who makes human beings in his own image. We don't get to decide that. Much of the modern church, unfortunately, has their theological nail gun and a pack of shingles with their body already halfway up the ladder when they need to have a bag of cement and boots going to the basement. Satan calls us to say, the roof's blowing off, but it's a shingle or two while he goes and destroys the foundation. So John, in John fashion, like a father repeating himself to his children, cycles back to the theme of loving one another as if to ensure we understand, yet again, this doctrine is load-bearing. It's not something off in the periphery. This isn't like a window. This isn't a screen. This is a load-bearing part of the foundation, and the whole structure topples if we don't get this right. You know, a lot of the the foundational truths he keeps going over, we sang this morning in the Apostles' Creed because that's the foundation. That's our structure. That's our skeleton. So as we come to the text this morning in verse 11, John reuses a familiar phrase. It's actually the same phrase he used to introduce the letter. We know it. For this is the message we heard from the beginning. Do you remember what that message was? You have been with us throughout this. You remember what the message was? 1 John 1.5. This is the message. We have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If you remember, John expounds upon this message through the first two chapters. God is light. Darkness is sin. Walk in the light of God's word and do not walk in darkness. Flee from it. Love God. Love neighbor. Hate sin. Be righteous. 
1 John 2, 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the message we have possessed from the start of our walk with Christ. It is the very foundation. Love God. Love neighbor. That's the message of the prophets and the apostles, dear beloved. God's word, the foundation, Christ being the cornerstone. That's what we've got to build on. That's a good place to build. John has went to great lengths to explain what love for God means. That's what we've looked at for the past couple months, really, in 1 John. Walking in his commandments, turning from sin, being assured that we have a Savior, being assured we will be righteous as he is righteous. However, John has not gone to great lengths to explain and expound upon what love for our brother looks like. Yet, he has said, if we hate our brother, we are in darkness. But even that was in the context of how we love God. Now, in the text before us this morning, we have the joy and the honor and the privilege to understand what love of brother looks like in action and really in depth. Remember, this is foundational, church. This is foundational. This is part of the spine. If we get this wrong, the whole structure of the Christian life collapses. Look at verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. And what is it? That we should love one another. This verse comes on the heels of verse 10, which, assure, which asserts what? The children of God show themselves to be such by bearing fruit of righteousness and turning away from sin. Now, John is telling us a family trait of what it means to be a child of God. One of our new birth genetic markers, like the same little birthmark that all my kids have on the back of their head. It's like little angel kiss strawberry things. They've all got them. All part of the family, right? And one of those new birth genetic markers, the new birthmark, love one another. This love for one another is old, actually, but it's the, the old, new, new commandment, new old commandment that John has talked about in 1 John 2. Christians, those who declare they are the family of God, should love one another. They should love one another. Well, duh. I mean, come on, this is basic Christianity one-on-one. Duh. Yes, duh. But that's easier said than done because we know that sin so easily trips us up and tries to throw mud in our faces to fight dirty. Right? So, dear listener, your question this morning, your first question of self-examination is this. Big, bold question. Here it is. You ready? You know where we're going. Do you love your fellow Christians? Do you love your fellow Christians? Notice the immediate context here of 1 John 3.11 is not philanthropy. Right? It's, it's not just a general love of humanity. We certainly are called to have that. We are. Jesus calls us to have that. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're called to have that. But right here in context, we're talking about one another. The one another being children of God from verse 10. The children of God are called to love one another. Just like the the kids in the back right now are not loving one another at all. 
right? Yes, we may bicker and rub one another raw and annoy one another, but if we be in our Father's house, at the end of the day, children, we must love one another despite our differences, as long as those differences are differences that are superficial and not complete differences of DNA. Think of it like this. Man, it's so providential about the whole house thing. I'm not going to talk about a toilet, though, like Garrett did. Right? Our Father's house contains many rooms. We were told that, weren't we? These many rooms are like the denominations who have not gone to hell in a handbasket recently. Affirming sin, blessing sin, condoning sin, participating in sin. Each room of these little denominations, right, are like siblings with one another. You've got the Presbyterians, you've got the Baptists, you've got the Methodists, you've got those that say they're non-denominational, but they really are. All these things, right? We've got all of these mixed together in this big, beautiful house. And our Father has given us some house rules. Think of those house rules as the Apostles' Creed, the authority of the Scriptures, things like that. But He has said that we can kind of decorate our rooms how we like. Some paint the room dark. Another has blinds. The other has curtains. The other has carpet instead of hardwood. The siblings may go into one another's room like we have so often done. You who have siblings, I don't, unfortunately. And you may bicker and you may rub each other raw and you may jest and you may poke. Why would you paint it this color? Ooh. Gosh, why would you put that poster up there? That's terrible looking. Why would you have, that's the ugliest carpet I've ever seen. Here, let me make it look better. I'll just roll around on it, right? We all like siblings. You have siblings or friends are like siblings. We like to, we like to jest. We like to roughhouse a little bit, but it's all in love. But one of these house rules is that we keep one another safe according to the scriptures. If we walk into, let's just say, Southern Baptist brother's room or fill in the blank, whatever, it would be unloving for us to ignore the fact that he has put an 800-pound solid oak wardrobe in front of the only window in the room that has a fire escape, wouldn't it? The, what? hey, whoa, whoa, why, why have you got that? Don't you tell me what to do. No, no, hold on. Seriously, look, why would you do that? If the house catches on fire, you've got to be able to get out. Why would you put that there? See, you see, at the end of the day, we all have superficial differences. But right now, right now, we do have some major differences doctrinally because Christ is perfecting his bride. Yet we need to listen to one another in love, comparing everything with the scriptures. And at the end of that same day in our Father's house, we come out of our rooms to a table that our big brother Jesus made, and we feast with merriment on bread and wine. Christian, do you claim to be Christian? Beloved, do you love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? You must answer with excitement. Yes, you need to answer the way our kids sing Apostles' Creed. Yes, right? Yes, I that's right, Sebastian. Yes, yes, I love my fellow Christians. Yes, I do. But in case you need some clear examples of what it means to do so, John gives us that in the preceding verses. 
1 John 3, 12 through 13. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. This is the only direct mention of the Old Testament in 1 John. This is the only kind of cross-reference that he has. You, you Bible scholars, do you remember who Cain was? Have you been playing Bible taboo at home on Saturday nights before you come to church? Do you remember who Cain was? Do you remember who his brother was? In Genesis 4, 1 through 9, I'll, I'll read it for you. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, excuse me, Cain brought to Yahweh an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the first of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. He always said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain and Abel were possibly twins which is a major theme throughout the Old Testament, the tale of two brothers. And notice that even as soon as man is banished from the garden and comes under the curse, there is already an awareness of worshiping God. Don't miss that. It's, it's evident that even after the fall, Adam and Eve knew how to appropriately worship God and taught their children how to. Parents, you all in here today, parents, we don't wait to see if our children want to follow us, call them to, and disciple them to. That's why we have family worship here, that they see how serious this is. Sebastian just said amen. He came up and sat on my lap last week to listen to the confession and the catechism. Are they a little unruly sometimes? Yeah, you bet. You're unruly too. How many times do you get mad over a stupid ball game? Don't you shake your head. Right? That's why we discipline them. Hey, if they're loud, you take them out, get them calmed down, bring them back in. So we can all worship the Lord in spirit and truth because that shows them, parents, that shows them the way that Adam and Eve showed Cain and Abel, this matters. We come before the Lord. We see right here in this that one of the aspects of worship was to steward and bring God sacrifice. Abel was a shepherd. Cain was a gardener. Cain brought God an offering, and so did Abel. See, Genesis implies that Cain brought God a mediocre payoff that kind of like cost him nothing, as if God were a burden, whereas Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and gave God the very best portion, something God had taught and was continuing to teach, of which would culminate in the best of his flock, his firstborn as an offering, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, the end of all sacrifice. See, Abel 
was a child of God because Abel was offering unto God a sacrifice like God had given his own parents, taking an animal substitute and covering them with that skin. Cain was a child of the devil because he worked the dust of the ground and brought God the dust of the ground, second-rate potatoes and squash with mold and mildew and thorns still attached here. I know I'm supposed to worship you. God, God graciously disciplines Cain here. Do you see this? He doesn't throw fire from heaven on him. He says, Cain, hey, that's, that's not what this is about. Look at your brother Abel. See that? He can be well with you. Talk to him. Figure out what he's doing. I, I, I'm not just going to say, here, this is how you do it. Learn from your brother. Right there. So what happened? God gives Cain a second chance. But Cain, following his true father, murdered his brother and didn't care. John expounds upon Genesis 4 and tells us why Cain murdered his brother. Because Abel was righteous and Cain was evil. Am I my brother's keeper? He can take care of himself. Am I his manager? Do I have to put some sort of ankle bracelet on him, God, and keep track of him all the time? What pure hatred. See what John is doing here, church. He is giving us an example of each family tree and the very first branches of that tree at that. He is giving us clear examples of brotherly love, and right here, it's an example in the negative. Don't be like Cain, who looked at his brother and hated him. Don't be Cain who didn't want to be righteous and want to do his own thing and to find his own terms with God and then become furious when he was rejected by God. Don't be like Cain. John goes on to say in verse 13 in kind of a parenthetical statement, don't be surprised, brothers. The world hates you. John is playing on the word brothers here. Don't miss that. We're talking about Cain and Abel. And so he says, all right, brothers, don't be surprised if the world hates you. John is saying Cain was the prototype of the world, the system of rebellion that hates God and his creation. And suddenly John is is saying the children of God are like Abel, the righteous son. See, when we worship the Lord correctly, walking in his way, loving him, loving brother, even learning from one another, fleeing from sin and desiring to be righteous like our big brother Jesus is righteous, knowing that one day we will be fully free from sin, seeing Christ as he is and being like him, then we come before him like Abel. And if like Abel, the world will certainly try to put us to death. And that is exactly the point that John begins to make in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Straightforward. The children of God are not children of Cain. I, Howard Howard Marshall, a commentator, notes with such clarity right here, the story of Cain shows what failure to love one's brother can lead to, sheer murder, and thus stresses that all hatred 
is embryonic murder. All hatred is a little baby murderer inside your heart. Jesus made the same point in Matthew 5, 21 through 22 in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said that it was said of, uh, of those of old, you should not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hellfire. There's degrees there, isn't it? It's not just you just flat out hate a fellow Christian, you flat out hate someone, there's these degrees that Jesus is like, seriously, come on. You want to be like the guy of Psalm 36 who has all these justifications for why he hates the way he hates and sins the way he sins? No. I see right through it. If someone is murdered, what happens to them? This is, this is philosophically and theologically complex. Okay, you ready? If they're murdered, they're dead die. Okay? They lie in death with no life in them. But that's not the child of God. We don't hate our brother. That's death. Hatred birthed the first murder in human history. And, and if we have been birthed by God, our Father causing us to pass out of that death into his glorious life and light, then we will love our fellow Christians because true Christian love does not produce death. It does not produce thorns and thistles. Notice here in the verse, John alludes to the Christian as being a child of God, as formerly being in death. Man has fallen. He is dead in his trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. And it is God who resurrects him unto new life and causes him to pass out of that death into life. That's what the new birth metaphor is all about. And whoever does not love, remain in, live in, have intimate fellowship in, abide, meno. What? What happens? Death. The exact opposite of what it means to abide in love. The mark of a Christian is he who loves his brother. For love is, as John Stott puts it, the preeminent, the grand overarching Christian virtue. It's the first fruit of the Spirit with every single one of the other fruits. They're all singular, telling you what love is. The sign of the reality of faith in Galatians 5, 6. And the greatest of the three abiding Christian graces, which never ends and without which we are nothing. 1 Corinthians 13. The authentic followers of Jesus Christ who have passed from death to life, hunger, they crave Christian fellowship. They hunger to abide with one another in love, just like Abel hungered and craved to be in fellowship with God. John goes on and says in verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John bluntly states the matter. Failure to love our fellow Christians Hatred of them is murder. There's no little asterisk there where we've got to go to the footnotes and say, well, but this, if you hate your brother, you murder him. And no murderer inherits eternal life. That's following Cain. Abel, don't go into that field. Don't go into that field. 
Cain proved himself to be a child of the devil by mimicking his father. But I thought, I thought they had the same father. Adam, no, no, hold on, hold on a second. Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees in John 8, 44, says this. Hey, you that are mocking me, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Uh-oh, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, his own native tongue, for he is a, a liar and a father of lies. The devil has been a murderer from the beginning, and his murder began with the hatred of God and hatred of God's image bearers. Yes, the devil has his own message from the beginning as well. Hatred. There's no eternal life for the murderer. And do you know what that means? The child of God doesn't need to whimper, sit in the corner, have a little express your emotions session. No, the child of God can rejoice that the chief murderer, Satan, the devil, our enemy, shall not prevail. Indeed, he cannot prevail. He has been defeated. He has been crushed by the one who is eternal life, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who destroyed the works of the devil. Amen? And it is here that we see one of those works that Jesus has completely obliterated. Hatred. Jesus has defeated this, and that is our proclamation. That is what we celebrate when we shout in that first song, it is finished. He has defeated that. The war is over. Although the battle is on the back lines raging on, there's no winning for the enemy camp. Child of God, rejoice in that. We have looked upon Christ we who so often are like Cain, and we have seen, oh, but be like him. Look to him, and you will do well. Yes, we want to do well like our big brother, Jesus, because he is the greater able. Rejoice. Lift the shout with ragged voice. All right. All right. All right. Woo! Yeah, I knew I could get one out of Sebastian. All right, Pastor, I rejoice in that. That is good news. Amen. Hallelujah. Tell the truth and shame the devil. Woo! All right. But can you give me some practical examples of how I love my brother? I can't, actually. But John can. Let me help you frame up your next question of self-examination. Do I know what biblical love for the brothers Do I know what biblical love for my fellow Christian looks like? 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is how you know what love looks like. Love is not some sort of sexual perversion. Love is not butterflies. Love is not a rainbow flag. Love is not anything that our culture says it is. Love looks like this, that he, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us. Love is self-sacrificing, not self-gratifying. True love desires to see the well-being and life of another flourish to its foolish, fullest potential. And we have the greatest example of that in our Savior, our big brother, Jesus the righteous, who went to the point of death that we may live. He became our covering that 
we may not be naked and ashamed, but clothed in the skin and the wool of the righteous lamb that we may fellowship with God and abide in his presence face to face like Abel, dear friends, being accepted and knowing him, how to walk with him. True Christian living, paradoxically, is love through death. Christ loved us so much that he transferred us from death into life and took our death in his place. Oh, dear beloved, my dear ones, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are, and that's how we're called children of God. That is glorious. His love for us, his love for his people was set upon us in such a way that it's love that we're called to replicate. Do you not see that? This isn't like a once a year Valentine's Day little box of like chalky hearts that say, be mine. This is love that we replicate every single day. Yes, be like that brother. Don't be like Cain. Be like Jesus, the greater Abel. Look to him. Cain, full of hate, sought to harm his brother and work against him. But Jesus, the greater Abel, full of love, which includes hatred of sin, sought his brother's good and worked for them. That's you. Amen? This example of, of self-sacrifice is, is our obligation because we follow our king with joy. Do you realize what that makes you? a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God. What an inheritance you have. That's why you get some armor. Before we go throwing ourselves in front of a bus, jumping in front of a bullet, which we should be willing to do for our fellow Christian brother or sister, John wants us to realize there's some practical things here that you don't want to miss. He wants us to realize that martyrdom, losing your life for the faith of physically dying to save someone else, that's totally legitimate, but that's this polar end of the spectrum. Okay? And the other extreme end would be over here that we're going to look at today, and we're going to keep it in the middle right here. John knows that over here on this polar extreme is not the norm. It's not the norm. That's not every single person's call or lot in life. That's like a a fraction of a percentage. John would probably have pulled his hair out in chunks if he would be alive, been alive today in our age of social media, because social media wants us to make entire rules based out of minority cases, and you can't ever say a generalized statement without having to explain yourself ad nauseum. Example, abortion should be legal across the board. No, it should not. No, not in any case. You're not a Christian. You don't think that should be across the board. What about rape and incest? To make it legal to murder your child, whether conceived in faith or in sin, based on less than a 1% statistic, is wicked. Wicked. Oh, but, 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 and then you gotta, you gotta explain, no. Wicked. Abortion is murder. Full stop. 
We can speak in generalizations because they contain the most truth. That's what John wants us to see. But he wants to make sure that the first century people on Roman Instagram and Roman Twitter or whatever, Twitinius, get their generalizations and their explanations. 1 John 3.17 is John's version of making sure that we don't get stuck in the fringes as if to think, well, if I don't die for somebody, if I don't die for somebody, that means I don't love them, and that means I don't love God. Impeccable logic. Really? No. The opposite of the fringe is this. Like, yeah, sure, I, I love my brother or fellow sister, and then they never give them any sort of life. Right? Here's John's explanation for all of us that need somebody to explain it more and more and more. You can't ever see a general concept. 1 John 3.17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Woo, that's a stinger right there. Firstly, let me clear something up real quick. John says world's goods, the world's goods. This isn't talking about sinful stuff. This is where context dictates what that word cosmos means that we learned about in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Literally, in the Greek, the first portion of verse 17 reads like this, but if he has the life of the world, if someone has the life of the world, goods, there in the Greek, is the word bios, where we get the word biology, which is the study of what? Life. Okay. It's not hard to understand what John is saying in this context at all, is it? If you are making a living, and you have possessions in this world, if you have life, if you have sustenance, if you have goods, if you have material things. Notice John is, is playing off life and death here in his words. If you have life of the world, possessions, and think you've got to wait around to take a bullet for your fellow brother or sister, you're completely missing the point. If you have life of the world, goods, and you see your fellow Christian in need, and yet close your heart, you don't have God's love. You've missed the entire point of the sacrifice of Christ. Commentator Jay Denny gives this analogy that drives this home. I want you to listen to this, and I want you to imagine this in your mind's eye, especially since it talks about sitting on a pier in summer and it's 20 degrees outside. Listen to this. If I were sitting on the end of a pier on a summer day enjoying the sunshine and the air, and someone came along and jumped into the water and got drowned to prove his love for me, I should find it quite unintelligible. I might be much in need of love, but an act in no rational relation to any of my necessities could not prove it. How does that love me? But if I had fallen over the pier and were drowning, and someone sprang into the water, and at the cost of making my peril, or what but for him would be my fate, his own? saved me from death, then I could say greater love hath no man than this. I should say it intelligibly because there would be an intelligent relation between the sacrifice which love has made necessity to redeem me. Take this idea about Christ's sacrifice and reorient it for your life and for what John is saying here in verse 13. Some Christians, guys, ladies, are sitting on the pier enjoying the sun. They're fishing got a big old worm on that hook, and they're doing good, okay? They're well off. Others are drowning. For those who can help their fellow Christians not drown, that's the love of God. Christians 
helping others with finances or with a job or with encouragement or with discipleship or even with, I don't know, a meal or some clothes if they're that down and out. We're not requested to think about doing that. We're called to do this. We're called to jump into the lake, even at the cost of losing your life. And guess what? Maybe you won't. And maybe you get both of you all out of there and you get to dry off on the pier and enjoy the day together. What beautiful fellowship is that? And that's what John closes us out with this morning. 1 John 3, 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Children, my dear ones, don't just say you love your fellow Christians. Show it. Do something with it. And show it in ways that align with the truth. Don't miss that either. We love our fellow brother according to the truth. The truth. And what is the truth? God's word. The scriptures of which Jesus came to uphold in bold text for us, not to dismantle. Loving our fellow Christian does not mean that we affirm their sin. That everything's just like a kumbaya party no matter what. We don't affirm their sin. If we see a brother sinning, one who claims to be a brother, we need to lovingly go to them. We need to tell them, you got to get that wardrobe out from in front of that, that window. Seriously. I'll even help you push it out of the way. It probably would go better over here. We don't give applause to sin. We do not join in on wanting to offend and end up considering and condoning the sin of our supposed fellow Christian. Think of it like this. Our father's house is a five-star B&B. It's great. It's perfect. All the Christians are the staff. If we see our fellow brother who is in maintenance, ripping out the copper wire in the basement because he can make a quick buck and he says that his family needs food, we don't love him by Joining, let me give you another hand with that, dear friend, my brother. We don't do that. We go, what are you doing? Someone's going to see that. You're going to turn the five-star into a three-star. What are you doing? You're giving our family a terrible name. Pagans and sinners can affirm one another and call it love all they want, but we don't. Pagans and sinners can come to our house and steal our standards, but we don't join in ransacking it with them and say, yeah, cheer, take it. Homosexual marriage is not real marriage. It's homosexual mirage. They take from God's standard and try to apply it for their own. It's terrible wickedness. It's an abomination. We don't listen to what the world says. We focus on building one another, our fellow Christians, up in truth and in love. Sexual sin is not love. The truth of the scriptures says homosexuality is an abomination and God hates it. Your self-obsession is not love. Self-love is not good love. The truth of Scripture says a haughty spirit brings destruction and a prideful spirit comes before the fall. Stop posting stuff to get people just to like you and manipulating people to make you feel good about yourself. Stop. Stop it. Your greed is not a career. The truth of the scripture says where your heart is, there your treasure is. And your bank account being where your heart is, is going to leave you looking like Silicon Valley Bank. We love our brothers and sisters in truth. And if we are called to do unto others as we would have done unto us, wouldn't we want the truth given to us? 
I'm not talking about conspiracy theory truth like red pilling. I'm talking about the truth of the scriptures. Love one another to the point of being willing to die for the truth, but also be willing to live giving out that life in truth. You want a practical example of this? Listen to what James 2 says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, I'll pray for you. Without giving them the things they need just even for their body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, dead. You know why? Because you're murdering them. If there's someone in your church or that you're connected to as a Christian who is down on hard times, what do you do? I don't know, do you have extra money? Give it to them. Do it in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, being like a Pharisee. Don't do that. If, if there's a fellow believer who's older and a widow or a widower in your church, how about you work them into your schedule each week, have them in your home, and give them a meal and a dinner and kind of adopt them as your grandma or your grandpa, making sure that you take care of them, especially if they don't have children of their own or their children are far away. Is there a fellow believer who is struggling on raising their kids and you've got three under your belt and a champ at it? Offer to help. How about this one? This one's really applicable for today. Okay, you ready? Is there a family in this church that you love who has small kids who get fussy, right? And yours are grown or older. You don't have to sacrifice to hop up and, and take the fussy kid out. What about you sacrifice and get up and go grab them and get them out and get them calmed down? So they see that it's serious and it's not just mom and dad, but this whole community sees that worshiping God's serious and you get them calmed down because that faithful mom and dad is always having to get a half sermon. Sacrifice for them. Do it. That's a way to love your fellow brother or sister. We so often think we are the only, we're only to love the people in the gutter. Love your fellow brother. We got to love them in the gutter and we are, but we can't love them at the expense of our own families. We're called to love both. You see that? We're called to love the Samaritan in the ditch, or we're called to love the Jew in the ditch and be the Samaritan. We're also called to love our own families. See? What great love. What great love that is. Sacrifice. Dear listener, do you love your fellow Christian in truth and in practicality? You must. You have to. For this proves that you are truly a child of God. You know, maybe today you have never experienced this love. Maybe you're down and out. Maybe you're the one in the gutter and have never seen the pure love of Jesus. Him dying in your place, a sinner deserving of wrath and hell, that you may live. Repent of your sins, therefore. Repent of them. Turn from them and turn to Christ and be a brother and sister in our house of faith. My dear ones, my cherished ones, beloved, don't be surprised don't be surprised when we actually start loving one another in truth like this, that the world hates us. The world's going to call you a cult. They are. And the world's going to try to cancel us. Don't be surprised and don't be alarmed. It's okay. Stay on the solid foundation of the truth and God's word, and you won't be shaken. That foundation's going to be just fine. If they hate you, remember, murderers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't act like them. Act like your father and your brother. Show them that family tree. Amen.
Grace and peace to you. Let's pray.